Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. Welcome back. Um, I wanted to start this episode by saying this has been by far um, the hardest episode for me to record and really probably the episode that made me want to do this podcast. Um, I think, you know, this is the third time that I've recorded this episode and I think I needed to get the other versions out um, to get to the truth and I think what's important about that is the narrative um, that we tell ourselves and the stories that we stay trapped in and what I'm learning is the power of examining them in releasing those stories um, is pretty powerful. And I think in this part of the story, um, heroes and villains are a little less clear. Um, But my hope is that there's someone out there that is going through something similar and struggling to really like themselves anymore and needs to hear this story. Um, And I also want to provide the things that I learned and the tools that I've learned to, um, I mean, you know, growth is a lifelong journey, but to help along that path. Um, so thank you for listening as always and stay tuned. So at the end of the last episode, um, my family and I were still living in the Airbnb and my mom and I were trying to figure out, um, my living situation and my long-term emotional and physical care. Um, So once we got most of those things squared away, uh, meaning mostly just on the care side, I still hadn't found a place to live, um, my family had to go back to Wisconsin. Um, My mom took care of my grandma and did dialysis with her at home twice a week and was still working and needed to go back 
to her life. They had, my parents had been out here, I think, for a month and a half, maybe, or a month at that point. Um, so I stayed in the Airbnb for another couple of weeks and my little brother came out and helped me. I, at that time, I still needed help, um, like cooking and taking care of myself. I remember he learned how to brush my hair up into a ponytail, which was very sweet. Um, and I had a couple friends come and visit, uh, during that week from out of town so everything was still feeling good. I I just, I, the anxiety of all of the decision-making was growing and growing and growing. And it got to a point where I was kind of left without many choices. I, I had maxed out my, basically like my, time in limbo and I needed to find a place to live and some girlfriends of mine and girlfriends we were we were close at the time but not very very close um offered for me to come and stay with them in an extra room in Venice and I was able to bring my dog and so I I packed a backpack full of clothes and got my dog Cookie, and we went to go live with um, with these girls in Venice. And I remember this time physically as when my body just started to feel really tight. Um, I just remember uh, walking around the city and looking for apartments and just feeling taut all the time. And I, I had gone to Target uh, with my mom and gotten two tank tops, a gray one and a black one after we got out of the hospital. And I had these black jeans and these black, like low heeled boots that made a really heavy sound when I walked, which I really liked. And every day I would put on this uniform, um, my gray tank top or my black tank top and my black jeans and my stompy boots. And I would take my dog Cookie and we would look for apartments around the city. And I, I remember it was also around this time that I, I wasn't noticing it really then um but looking back I my my appetite was completely gone so I just I never felt hungry and I remember taking cookie every morning to we would walk to a little cafe in Venice called Flake and cookie would have her dog food and then we'd go to this cafe and order, I'd order a black coffee and two breakfast sausages, one for me and one for her. And that would really be, um, all I would eat throughout the day. Um, and 
I would drive and go to my PT appointments during the week and go to my EMDR therapy appointments and go to my cognitive therapy appointments at the rape treatment center. And I just remember this time feeling very um, isolated for the first time, spending a lot more time alone and then very repetitive. And in the evenings, I would mostly be spending time with the girls that I was living with um, and an extended group of girls, uh, including my friend Meg, who you met in the last episode, and we would go out for dinners and happy hours and, you know, big group dinners of 20 people and you know, walk from place to place and party to party. And at this point, uh, looking back at it, like, you know, I was still on my continuation of wanting to feel normal, but I looked anything but normal. Um, My, I think my left arm was still in a brace, if not in a a smaller cast. Um, I still had, like, the bruising under my eye stayed for quite a while, and I still had these cuts on my forehead. I still had the, the bangs that stuck straight up, and I, you know, I looked like someone who, and I had scars all over my body, so thinking about me at happy hours and parties now is a little macabre, but um, I, that that was what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be distracted and I wanted to feel like everything was fine and that not basically almost like erasing that this thing happened. Though we did talk about it, you know, we we were still only get only had the information that we had about who this man was, why he attacked me, um, how I got away, you know, sharing stories with other women about their experiences with assault, um, because unfortunately those stories are so prevalent. But this, this time was for me marked by a lot of, you know, during the days time spent alone. And then in the evenings, really, really trying to rush right back into um, having a very, very busy social life. And like I mentioned at the end of the last episode, one of the bigger challenges with that was that my emotions were wildly swinging um, to exaggerated depths um, and without any kind of limit. Um, And to give you an example, um, I want to bring back my friend Meg. uh, And in this clip, we talk about a dinner that we were at um, where, you know, at this point, the situation with 
me and my ex was pretty distant and pretty contentious. Um, we, at this point, were somewhat friendly, but mostly at odds with each other every time we came into contact with each other. And I, I was feeling very abandoned by him at this point. Um, and you'll hear in the clip uh, how that manifested in my behavior. None of us had been through this before, you included. And we didn't know what a t the t healing timeline would look like. You know, we didn't know how to take care of someone who's gone through extreme trauma and is dealing with extreme PTSD. And I think you tried really quickly to get back to your regular life, which we would get happy hour, you know, on the weekends we'd go to dinner and stay at the restaurant for a long time. And I think you tried to get back in that right away and just try to like put on that familiar skin and it just didn't fit right anymore. And it didn't fit right, but we, we tried. Yeah. But I think there were a lot of triggers that we weren't aware of. And there was, yeah, the one night where um, someone kind of surprised you by saying, hey, your ex and the person who hurt you very recently is here picking me up to take me to a party and you it was like your eyes kind of went whoop and you started running no you walked outside and then you took off and you were just sprinting down main street in heels well in heeled boots and I was chasing you like scream Lee what are you doing stop and I'm running and you were, oh my gosh, it was so fast. And one of our guy friends, you know, everyone that we were with knew of your situation, of course. And he was so worried. He, he ran. I stopped running after like half a block because I'm like, there's no way I'm catching her. You're like an Amazon and I'm a... No, I was, I was told I was like Forrest Gump. Actually, it was <laughs> Jesus Lizard. Jesus Lizard. <laughs> It was a Jesus I was lizard. a lizard walking on, running, running on, on water at that speed. Um, it was, yeah, you were uh, very fast and I was not. So I went back to the group like, what the hell are we going to do? And then our guy friend came back panting and like 10 minutes later, he's like, I lost sight of her. Like I had her for a minute, but she's fast. Like I lost sight of her. And we were just like, okay, you know, so we were calling your phone. We were trying to find you. Um, I mean, do we get into people not understanding or do we just glaze over that? I think so. Okay. Well, when we came back from not being able to find you, you know, we're clearly upset. You are someone that we need to be looking out for, which, you know, we look out for all of our friends. If any of our friends had run away, we'd be worried. But especially you being so fresh off this attack, we knew that you were not okay on your own. And um, I'm kind of brainstorming with one of my friends, like, how are we going to find Lee? And 
someone that was going to that party with your ex said, and he made some comment about like, what are, are we in junior high? And maybe that was the first time that I said, someone just tried to rape and kill her. Like, this isn't junior high, this is extreme trauma. And he was so mad, his plans had changed. It was like he had no compassion. So my reaction in that um, story that Meg shared is clearly a flight response, Um, but I ran away from that restaurant and ran to, surprisingly, I ran to my first apartment that I ever lived in, in Los Angeles. It was also in Venice. And I ran to this old apartment where I had lived for a year when I first moved to LA in 2011. And um, it was dark out. I think it was maybe eight or nine o'clock. And I sat in the parking lot behind this apartment building and I was kind of talking to myself um, mumbling to myself, um, and rocking and holding myself like almost like a hug and, um, just kind of telling myself that it was going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're okay. You're okay. And I did that for about maybe 20 minutes and then kind of realized that I was sitting in a back alleyway in Venice at eight or nine o'clock by myself and was in a dangerous situation and got up and, and walked back, um, to the place that I was staying, uh, where, you know, we talk about how there was a mix of emotions amongst the group where for some it was clear, uh, the correlation between a big reaction like that and the recent trauma. And for some, it wasn't as clear. And I didn't realize at that point that that was a fight or flight response. I thought I just did something embarrassing. Um, so I didn't have that, that language or that understanding yet. I just knew that I had to, when I stood up to walk out, I knew that I had to punch something or I had to run. And I thankfully decided to run. Um, but I think what I would imagine a lot of people experience after something like this is confusion about that kind of behavior. Um, and really tracing it back when it, when the catalyst had really not nothing to do with my attack, tracing back a reaction like that to the trauma. So it was also around this time that my friend Andrew, um, you'll hear him 
talk about in the next clip, he and his husband were, their relationship was struggling and it had been. Um, and this attack, this incident happened amidst them having real trouble, real struggle in their relationship. And he needed to kind of take a step back um, to take care of himself and his marriage. Um, so we were in the Airbnb, I think, for a couple months, and then I moved in with Sarah and Christy in Venice. Mm -hmm. And I, like at that time, I remember just being obsessed with finding a new place. Mm -hmm. And just, I remember just driving around with Cookie all the time and looking for apartments. But I do think that around that time was when some of them like PTSD like symptoms started to come forward for me. Mm -hmm. Did you see that happening or how were you feeling about like where I was going and how things were moving? Were you feeling like you were able to like kind of get back into like a rhythm and a good place with your life? Yeah, I, th I think at that point, um, I think a lot of things with Vincent and I, had. that's when we started to, I guess, really get serious about um, working on our relationship and not just like talking about it but actually doing it um and not being as intimidated as we were by the whole topic i guess prior so like um so so that was good i think at that point i was kind of disoriented maybe is the word about our our relationship and not knowing exactly how I could be useful and knowing that you were living with Sarah um, and Christy um, and just not really knowing what, I don't know what value I could provide, but also like, I guess also seeing how many people were around to support you um, in a lot of that, I was like, I guess it, it kind of some ways makes you question like how much you're needed and not that I need to be needed, but just like has, it seems like there's enough people rallying and I don't want to be another voice because I know that there's like a lot of opinions about what you need to do and what, where to go next and blah, blah, blah. And, and I don't fucking know the answer, so I'm not going to like try and tell you what to do <laughs> like, like I, whatever feels right I don't know but like but so trying to figure out what like I guess what our 
friendship could be from that point or needed to be or where we were was like not by any means like in a negative way of like does she need me are we even going to be friends like whatever just more of a like I would just want to be I think I just wanted to be sure that you were getting whatever you needed and I don't care if it's coming from me and if you're getting the support that you need from particular people at a particular time, then I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, so if that, if at the, the end result of all of that is you find a place that you're happy with and feel safe and secure in great. Um, I don't need to be the one to help you do that. But I think coming from feeling like one of the closest people to then not being as close, I think was, I don't want to put it in any negative light. I think it was just disorientating of like, not sure where I fit into this. I want to be there for her, but I don't know where and how. Um, so I think that coming from like this flurry of being so intensely involved to then like being a bit less, being less involved um, was a little tricky to navigate because for for some reasons but then I think it was also like okay I have to put that aside for now and make sure that I'm still moving forward with my life um not putting you aside just putting aside the whole few months thing that that was and being able to say take stock and 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 like try and understand like where my life is headed. I'm freelancing. I don't have a hell of a lot of work on. I have a relationship to repair. I have these things I need to work through. Um, so I think it at least gave me some resolve in like what kind of what we touched on earlier with the like, I can actually tackle these things now and handle these things now because I have perspective now mm-hmm. where I didn't have it as much before. And um, so could just kind of like try and find a new rhythm again i think that's that's where my attention went um yeah and to tell the truth i understood but i was also really confused at the time and you know hearing that last part about Andrew feeling like I maybe didn't need him or want him around or or care um, when I heard it in this interview really broke my heart um, because he he was such um he was such a good friend and helped so much and um i'm just so glad that we're back in each other's lives so while i was living in venice 
another aspect of my PTSD that started to emerge for the first time was, uh, I don't know what to call them. They're not flashbacks um, because I guess I think of a flashback as um, a flashback to a, the traumatic event or a traumatic event. Um, but I guess for me, I would just call them flashes. Um, but the first time it happened was in that apartment in Venice. I was alone in the evening, um, and I was walking down the stairs, um, and as I was walking down the stairs, I remember focusing on like a, something on the carpet, and all of a sudden, the room changed from night to day, and I could hear people outside. It was like a barbecue or a, a party was happening outside, and I could hear people playing games and laughing, and um, all of my friends were out there, and I I, this was that, something like that is how I knew this apartment, um, prior to my attack that really the only time I would be at this apartment in Venice, um, prior to staying there would have been for a birthday party or a barbecue. Um, so this flash happened as I was walking down the stairs and it, lasted for 10 seconds but it was like the room was painted in a different environment for 10 seconds it wasn't a memory um and after it happened I sat down on the stairs and it just felt it went back to dark in the room and I was scared and it just felt, I felt crazy and it felt like the room was darker and emptier and colder um, after flashing to this imagined moment from the past. And I started to, on this staircase was a, they had it was stairs and then a, like an iron banister. And as I sat down on the stairs and I started to bang my head really hard against the iron banister. And the more I banged it against, you know, these iron bars, the better I felt. And I, I can... I can rationalize it by saying that I was banging on it because I was feeling crazy and I, I wanted to restart my brain or I couldn't tell what was real. So I wanted to remind myself what was real, but really I was, I was banging on my head over and over and over again, banging my head and it felt comforting to do that which also made me feel crazier 
And um, that behavior, that was the, you know, the, that was the first time a flash happened. Um, and that was the first time I ever banged my head. But that behavior persisted, um, not on a daily basis, but frequently. But we would still see each other, uh, my ex and I, at social events, usually big group social events. And when we would see each other, we'd greet each other cordially. Um, and usually, you know, time would pass and everything mostly would be fine around this time. This was maybe in May or June, July. Um of 2018. So what's that? Four months, um, after the attack, three to four months after the attack. And we would see each other and, you know, I would, I would be pulling out all the stops, um, for sure, because I still really wanted him to want to be in my life. So you know, I would tell him that I loved him. I would tell him, you know, I would give him space. I would try to be charming. I would try to be easygoing. I would try, you know, I was uh, dressing in clothes that I thought he would think was pretty. Um, because really, I, I wanted him back in my life. I, he was my you know, prior to this, my best friend and my main focus at this point was getting him to act normal and normal to me. And what would happen was when he would go to leave, everything would be fine. And then he would say that he had to leave. And I think this happened three times um, that he would say he had to leave. And when he said that, I would, I remember how I felt and it was an overwhelming feeling and behind my eyes would go red and it wasn't, there wasn't any decision making. It was by the time it was, I was realizing what I was doing. I was doing it. Um, but I would be, I think, overtaken with rage and I would attack him. I would punch at him. I would try to slap him. I would kick at him. And two of these times we were at restaurants or bars and Um, I was taken out by security people and those two times, um, he immediately jumped into a car and and was gone. Um, and I have never been someone who got into fights at, in public places um, or fights at all, physical fights. 
Um, so it was embarrassing and it was scary. Um, I think for everyone involved, um, and scary to me to feel out of control like that and to see how I scared people away from me. Um, and there's, there's no part of me that thinks that that behavior is acceptable. No one wants or should feel it just, it's not okay to attack someone that way. And looking back on it, it, there's a lot of shame that I feel, um, for doing that and shame that I should have been in more control, um, and shame that maybe I'm a bad person. Um, I also can look at it with compassion and understand that it was a fight or flight response and that my nervous system and adrenaline and all these things were highly activated and physiologically teed up to do things like this but if you're someone who's reacted this way you know the disappointed look in people's eyes and the the fear in people's eyes and what it makes you feel about yourself and I think as a survivor specifically of a sexual trauma um, and violence, I don't, I don't know that I've often seen depictions um, in TV and film of, I mean, you see this a lot in like TV and movies with soldiers that they come back and they're activated this way and, and uh, want to get into fistfights and always it's men because I think that's just what's been palatable that, that men feel rage this way and that men react to trauma this way. And I think the expectation is that women react to trauma with sullenness and sadness and tears and that's part of it too but I really struggled to forgive myself um, because I just don't haven't seen a community um, of people that that have done this and have found a way to forgive themselves. And I, like I said, I have compassion for myself, but at the same time, there's that fine line of holding yourself accountable and also 
giving yourself grace. So flash forward about a month, um, I was able to find an apartment that felt safe. Uh, it was out of my neighborhood, out a little further away from the west side where of LA where I had always lived, um, but in a very nice residential neighborhood in a very nice gated building um, when I moved in. There were, there was a couple on the first floor that had two trained Dobermans, um, and they were the on-site managers, and my apartment is up on the third floor, and there's a parking garage underneath it, so it's just, there's no way to access this apartment other than my door, and there's a couple different layers of access points to get to my door. Um, and also the, the building has a, an, a rooftop dog run. So I, I never have to take cookie, my dog out on the sidewalk at night by myself, um, which has been huge. And since I've lived here, I've slept easy most every night. Um, I once, I think one of my cats uh, jumped on the Apple TV remote and turned on Hereditary, and I woke up to Tony Collette screaming, and that was scary, but had nothing to do with the safety of this apartment. Um, So I moved into this apartment in May of 2018, and my parents flew back out to help me, you know, go through all the things at my old place, move, help me move into this place. Um, my aunt had set up a GoFundMe, um, on Facebook and people, people that I knew, friends of friends, um, family of friends, family, people from the community. So many people donated to this GoFundMe and, and that was how I was able to move into this new apartment that was very, very safe, like in a very, very safe neighborhood and in a very, very safe building. Um, and for me, I was still afraid and, and still under advisement, um, to kind of stay under wraps, um, in case there was anyone potentially who would be coming to um, attack me or, or threaten me. So it was it was actually really nice that it was a little bit removed um, from Santa Monica and Venice, which are, you know, pretty busy happening areas. So as I settled into this new space, um, I was living alone and I was still, you know, spending weekends and some evenings with, um, that group of girlfriends. Um, but I was spending more and more time alone. And I talked about in the last episode, 
um, that that rage uh, was becoming more and more salient in my life and kind of always just really accessible just under the surface um, and I at this point it had become clear that my ex and I were not going to be friends we had had multiple conversations and it just we were not on the same page anymore and for a multitude of reasons obviously um but something that was happening was when we would have those conversations about our relationship um about me what I wanted what he wanted um what kept coming up that was confusing for me was he 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 started around this time saying that I was remembering it wrong that I was remembering our relationship and our friendship wrong and he started saying that we hadn't been close friends, that we hadn't been in each other's lives, that we hadn't um, been as close as I remembered, and that I was remembering through rosy-colored lenses because I wanted someone to be around. And it was just at first I knew he was wrong you know at first when he said it I I knew and I fought back you know and said that's not true um but after so many times of him saying it it started to make me wonder if if I was imagining this whole thing. It was also around this time that he started hanging out with a whole new group of friends, um, a lot of people, that I, in the five years that I knew him and spent almost every day with him, had never heard of um, or met and there was one friend I remember that she was staying with him and she had a very distinctive name and he kept saying you've met her you've met her a bunch of times don't act like you haven't met her you've met her, you just don't remember, you have met her, and I, I, I knew that I hadn't, um, and I hadn't met any of this 
big network of friends that he had um, that I didn't know about. But all of this was just adding to my complete confusion. So it was also around this time that I was experiencing something more and more, and it it was similar in a sense to the flashes that I had in that I... I would be sitting in my apartment on the couch and I would all of a sudden be unsure why I was there and where I was. Um, and I would panic. You know, it, it's like you can look around at the, the walls of your home or your space and see home or you can look around at the walls of your space and just see walls and it would be like all of a sudden a switch turned off that gave me any recognition or connection to where I was and why I was here and that was scary when that would happen. Um, I was also thinking more and more um, that maybe that none of this was real. Um, that I remember thinking that maybe I had died and this was what happens after you die and that nothing was real um, and that this was I don't know I guess afterlife um, and then the other thing I was starting to experience was I stopped um, recognizing myself when I looked in the mirror and not like not like I'm mad at myself and so I choose not to like myself when I look in the mirror like the brain function that connects you to a set of features and allows you to feel a sense of familiarity and recognition of them as your own I could no longer feel um and that was also scary and at the time I I didn't know what those things were and I didn't know I thought I was just going crazy I thought I was just losing my mind and I was really, I think for most of us, the idea of losing your groundedness in reality and losing your ability to connect 
with what's real is one of the scarier things that you can experience. And I was having trouble and still have trouble. And this podcast has been a great exercise to help me um, do it and have a reference for it. Uh, I was having trouble with chronology after the attack. The um, time wasn't, time after the attack wasn't a line, wasn't linear. It was like moments bobbing around in a soup. And I could put them in order, but I had to focus really hard to put them in order. So, you know, all of these things that we all, I mean, I take for granted every day that my lungs breathe air and my heart pumps blood and my brain connects me to recognizing my face in the mirror and understanding that I'm in an apartment and this is real. But all of these things are controlled by your brain and and they can be switched on and switched off. And all of these things in combination with all the other things I was experiencing really started to make me afraid that I was not going to come out of this fine. So after these things kept happening, um, I was starting to feel more and more like it was dangerous for me to be around people, um, dangerous for them, and embarrassing and damaging for me. Um, and I started to spend more and more time alone. And it was around this time that I started to think, um, in loops, in continuous loops, and loops that would never end, almost like a song that's stuck in your head. Um, And I would think in the same loops from morning until night, and again and again and again, and around and around and around, and again and again and again, and was just kind of stuck and chewing on this same question, which was, why didn't my ex want to be a part of my life from when I woke up after the attack? Why? Why? I kept asking, where did he go? I can't find him. Where did he go? I can't find him. I just want to go back. Where did he go? I can't find him. I just want to go back. I was repeating those things to myself every day and sometimes I would mumble them to myself out loud and sometimes I would cry while I was doing it just 
over and over and over again and pacing around in circles and pacing around in circles and repeating and repeating and repeating. And it was comforting, the repeating and the pacing. It was scary um, because I, I looked like a crazy person. If someone would have seen me, it was to a T crazy person. Um, which I think is kind of an unkind term, you know, just someone suffering. But I was repeating all the time and it was starting to consume my whole life. And like I talked about, um, banging my head was something that I was doing to relieve, um, pressure, I guess. Uh, so I was at this point banging my head against my car window when I would drive to PT appointments. Um, I was, uh, banging on my head with my fists. I was banging on my head with my open hand. Um, I broke a glass over my head. I broke um, a curling iron over my head and it did feel like a release. It, it did feel momentarily like a reprieve of some kind. Um, but, you know, as I was doing these things, it just was safer to just spend more time alone. So something, there are a few things about um, my ex and I's relationship that I think play an important part in this part of the story. And one of them is my anger. So like I mentioned, I think a couple episodes ago, my having issues with explosive bouts of anger was not, um, not brand new news to me. Um, my mom, since I was little, had said that I, like, when I was angry, that I was scary, and I was not violent, I was just, scared. like, my eyes change, and I get scary to people, and like I said, my boxing coach thinks it's funny, um, but he's one of one. Um, I had had other ex-boyfriends say, you know, almost the same thing that like my, like just that when I would get angry, I would just get like shark eyes and be kind of a scary, explosive person. And that, that's not to say that I was getting angry and screaming at people at the grocery store or anything like that. It was, um, it, it wasn't, I wasn't, walking around hindered in my everyday life. 
by this, but when I, when I did reach a point of anger, I think it was, it has always been, um, kind of like emotionally, um, overwhelming or off-putting, I know, to the people around me. Um, and in my ex and I's relationship, my anger reaching that point of being explosive and yelling, um, had, had happened many times, um, over the course of our relationship. Um, we were mostly categorized as like happy, fun, loving, silly, um, a fun fun-loving couple um but when we did fight you know like I I would be the one who yelled loudest I would be the one who would swear I would be the one who would stomp away um so my my anger just presented itself as angrier than his in in fights he he very rarely if ever, seemed angry at me. Um, but, so that's one part of it that I want to make sure I touch on. And then the other part that I think plays a role at this point of the story is that him telling me that I remembered things wrong was not new um that that started happening it i mean it happened throughout our relationship um and in different ways but the first time i remember it happening was about 2 weeks into us even starting to see each other before we were even dating and you know we didn't know each other very well but we knew we liked each other and I think, you know, we had kissed or something like that. Um, and I called him and he was on a weekend group trip um, with the girl that I, that he had been dating really recently. And I, I was upset because I was confused and he said, no, I, I told you about this, remember? You just don't remember. I told you about this. Don't act like you don't remember. And I, I remember getting off the phone and I called my mom and I was like, I don't know why he's telling me that I remember something that I know that I did not know because it, I wasn't told um, that this was going to happen. But from from then on, it was always things like that, like he would plan like a, an out-of-the-country guy's trip and, you know, two days before he was planning on leaving, this was when we were actually dating, two days before he was planning on leaving, I would hear him say something about the airport and I'd say, what? And he'd say, oh, I'm going on a six-day guy's trip to wherever 
You knew about this, remember? Don't tell me you forgot. You remember, right? I told you about this. And, you know, in retrospect and with the understanding that I have now, um, I can see what was happening. Um, but at the time, it would just turn into a fight, and a fight that there was no way to win. Um, and I, over time, started to really internalize that I was often wrong about things, that he was very good at everything, and that I needed his help with most things was kind of the way that I was always thinking. And like in the last year or so of our relationship, um, he would also say things to me like uh, that I had, that I shouldn't come to things because my anxiety was too bad and it would be too um, hard for my anxiety if I were to come. And he would also do this thing where, like, I, I, anyone who knows me knows that I'm someone who has a track record of being late to things. Um, and back then it was terrible. I've, I've since gotten much, 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 much better about it. But back then it was horrible, my timeliness. And anyone who's known me for a long time can attest to that. But um, it was plausible in almost every situation that I was the reason for lateness. But it, it started to happen more and more that if he were running late and put us behind by 40 minutes or something like that, and I would be waiting for him or I'd be you know going to pick him up and he'd say he needed more time, Wherever we would arrive, he would tell, he would walk in and announce to everyone that I had made us late. And I would, you know, exclaim and like guffaw, like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. You know, like, not, not this time I didn't. No, it was you. And he'd kind of give me a wink and everyone would believe it because it was a plausible thing and it was a harmless lie. I thought, but it was frustrating, and and I remember another time that he told me he was waiting for me somewhere, and he would, he would say that a lot, and like, and I would feel really guilty, and he would make me feel guilty for making him wait. He was waiting at a restaurant, he said, and I ran, got to, got into the restaurant, and he wasn't there. And I called him and I, I said, I'm at the restaurant. I'm so sorry. Like, did you leave? And he walked up laughing and kind of gave me a wink again and, sa and said, like, oh, come on. You know, like, I, you know, wasn't going to get here before you and waste my time. And I was furious because it was... 
harmless, but a lie. So going into this, I really already had a low opinion um, of myself and um, I really had started to believe a lot of these things that he was saying and I was frustrated, but I didn't, I couldn't really understand why I was so, I believed that he was wonderful and everything and loved me more than anyone would ever love me and that I was a low person especially you know I I struggled with uh, you know anxiety and depression according to him and I didn't believe or I didn't remember things the right way and I often offended people accorded according to him and owed people apologies and I always felt like I was lucky that he loved me the way he did but at the same time we would get into these big fights like I said and I just I was getting more and more sad and just having such a low opinion of myself, I, you know, when this started happening and I started acting out and, you know, he was telling our friends the reason that he was staying away was to help me um, recover. But what I kept ye- saying, what I kept yelling was, I need you here. I, I want you here. And he would tell all of our friends that the reason he didn't want to do that was because I, he clearly brought out the worst in me and nothing that he did was ever right. And I had hurt him so badly in the hospital um, and in the days after the hospital by having that other guy there. So, you know, it wasn't just him that was looking at me like I was... A villain it was everyone around me and he's a really charming funny fun engaging person and lit up every room we ever went into I always you know really kind of relied on him to you know be the charismatic and entertaining one and a lot of our friends I believed you know, that the majority of the reason that we were friends was because he was so wonderful and they just accepted me as part of the deal. Um, so this was all, you know, swirling around amidst these things happening. And I know I mentioned in the last episode, uh, that, he, um, a, a previous Christmas, the previous Christmas, I think in 2017, had done the Love Actually thing with, with a pad and paper and said all these very sweet things, like, I want to live the rest of my life with you. And I remember 
around this time, him, me calling him, crying, where are you? I can't find you. I don't understand. And he came and met me in a park, in a public place, and walked with me to Staples and bought a pad and marker and wrote on the pad we are not friends we are not close friends we haven't been for a long time we I don't remember exactly what it said it was just almost the exact opposite of this other gesture that it had happened what six months before and almost trying to erase that that ever happened and I, I think I ran away crying and got into my car and drove home so I was falling deeper and deeper into this pit um, where I was really I all I felt all day was this despair and self-pity and confusion and anger and I who I am inherently is that I I do have a really hard time um, this podcast probably seems the opposite of that but I do have a really hard time with showing people that when I'm struggling um, or showing people anything that's not um, planned and rehearsed and perfected um, and I I don't really know why that is uh, I like I think I'm a perfectionist and I think I like control and I think that second one certainly has gotten more pronounced um, since the attack but um, all of I was unraveling in this new apartment and um, not reaching out to anyone uh, to ask for help it also makes it challenging because you are um, the type of person who doesn't like asking for help, but like a very extreme version of that where you will suffer tremendously to avoid asking for help, which I'm the dead opposite. If I need help carrying my groceries in, I'll flag someone down on the <laughs> sidewalk. I'll ask anyone for help. Because why not? That's what communities are for, right? But... That's a whole... Do you really... Do pe- people help you with your groceries? No, but I, I did flag someone down to help us move a heavy dresser in once. Oh. It was a really sweet college kid. That's And nice. he was like, I just... I really hope you guys make it. What a great use for a college kid. <laughs> I hope you guys make it. Um, no, but you did not know how to ask for help. You didn't want to ask for help. So it was very much like... Um, you know, we did a couple overnights and then I think maybe your mom was in town. So we backed off a little and then 
we didn't even know she had gone back home and you were on your own and it seemed like there were other people filling in which you know we found out way later that that wasn't actually happening um so that's i think when we there was like a group of three or four of us that kind of stepped in and became like I, I think back then we had a schedule too of who's staying with Lee tonight. Did anyone like bring her dinner? You know, there was a whole text thread that you were not on of like who's on Lee duty sounds like you're a child, which isn't fair, but it was kind of like was. you were not a child, but you were definitely like, um, in need. Fragile. Yeah. Very fragile. And the other thing about that was I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, me and this group of girlfriends were not incredibly close before the attack. So I don't like to show vulnerability and was at my most vulnerable and had to accept help from friends that I I didn't know very well at the time, which is super scary. Um, so I think you'll hear in this next clip Meg talk about, I think it was kind of a surprise to all of us. I mean, in the beginning, supporting you was, it was not actually something I knew I was going to be doing. Yeah. Because you had so many people in the hospital already, and it felt very like you were taken care of. You had your family, you had your ex, and so I was trying to be like a support to them. Like, I brought them bagels in the morning at the hospital, things like that. When I said... Like, what can we do? Do you have someone staying with you? And you looked, like, shocked that anyone would even offer. And you said you would do that. And I, I had another friend next to me. And we were like, well, both, well, we can both stay. And that was the beginning of, oh, okay, she actually needs help. Uh, but then, you know, I think we were all more than willing to help because it was very much like what we've talked about before where we all saw ourselves in you. That happened to you and you were a mile from us that could have happened to any of us and it was so terrifying that it's like why wouldn't we help you so when it started to get really bad um like meg said um my girlfriends would really have to kind of reach out to me a lot um, to get me to answer and be kind of forceful, I guess, about um, getting me to to allow anybody in. Um, I wasn't really showering. Um, I wasn't really eating. I, I know I said at the beginning of this episode that my appetite almost diminished I think at this time I was really just eating um Triscuit crackers and cheese every day um 
and I was very, very thin. And I was like the, I wasn't taking the dog out. I wasn't cleaning. Um, I wasn't doing laundry and I was just drinking, um, from morning until night. Um, because that, that and going to the movies were really, and I'll talk a little bit more about going to the movies in the next episode, but those were really the only things that would make it stop the, the looping, um, and the, um, obsessiveness. Yeah. It would be like, I'd arrive and you'd already been drinking and it would just be like we'd sit on the couch and you just kind of pelt out these questions and we'd try to like hash it out but there were no answers to the questions to me that made sense or that would break me from this loop so I I know I I talked about earlier in the episode um my my rage and becoming somewhat violent and one of the lower points I remember around this time was I had been drinking and I went to a bar on Pico to a bar that I'd never been to before and I went there with the intention of getting into a fist fight um, because I wanted to punch, I wanted to be punched, I wanted to feel that. I don't, and it's hard for me to connect with that now and understand that now, but I drove to this bar and I, I sat up at the bar and ordered a drink and I thankfully happened to sit next to a nice older man um, who talked to me and I of course went through my whole spiel and told him the story and uh, he connected with me and he calmed me down and he gave me a cigarette and then I went home and it would, there, there were a few different instances around this time where I ran into, um, older people that were out alone and also just wanted somebody to talk to and was really thankful for those moments to find someone who also had a story to tell and felt like they had no one to tell it to. So as you can imagine, my mental state just continued to get worse and worse. I was starting to experience... um, blackouts but not drinking related blackouts and at some point it it just became 
too overwhelming this this um constant cycle of of obsession and um despair and rage and fear and confusion it just was never ending and there was just no reprieve it was just constant and I got to a place where I didn't think that I could do it anymore and there was one night um and I I thought that I had lost my mind um I really believed that and there was one night that I I had been prescribed Prozac but I wasn't taking it um and I went and sat in the kitchen and I had had a terrible day um and terrible as in the symptoms and what I was experiencing was really bad and I took that bottle of Prozac and um I put it all of them in my mouth and I sat down on the kitchen floor and I immediately made myself think of all the reasons why I could not do that. I thought about my dog. I thought about my mom getting a call from a landlord or something. You know, I I, I couldn't do that to everyone that I loved most. And... But I kept thinking, I also can't keep doing this. And I, that was the first time I ever, I think, realized what evolutionarily, I guess, I think our imaginations can do for us um, beyond childhood was... I made myself imagine another life, me in another life, that I would like. I thought about living on a boat, a world that was very different from mine. I thought about being married and having kids. And I used my imagination to remind myself that the constraints that I feel around this crushing everything are just imaginary constraints. I don't have to live in this apartment. I don't have to live in Los Angeles. I don't have to be the Lee that I always thought I should be or I was. If it's me versus getting to experience anything anymore, I have to be willing to take drastic measures to at least imagine that I could have a life that I could feel something again. And I spit out the pills and I threw them away. Um, and I went down to my car and I called the suicide hotline and I'd never done that before. And I honestly didn't know 
what to expect or who would answer, but someone answered and I, I talked to her for maybe an hour and a half or two hours and she was so supportive and so kind and such a good listener and so engaged and it really did change that night for me to connect with a complete stranger and I really was it was so much more than I could have ever expected so it was after you moved in here that I started getting the like emergency calls from you like suicidal type call yeah it would be you calling and like kind of scream sobbing like I can't do this I want to die and it you know it's terrifying so I would zip over I'm like 15 minutes away right jump on the freeway come over you'd buzz me in and you would just be like wailing on the couch and it happened a few times it happened a few times well I've told you this but you know I was still working and you know not to ever discount what you were under because what the stress you were under what you were dealing with obviously was my stuff was minuscule compared to that but there is some like transferred stress where my thoughts were constantly like, okay, I haven't heard from Lee in three hours, you know, texting, texting with your mom, your mom and I were constantly texting. Have you heard from her? Oh, I just talked to her. Okay. She's okay. And then be like, okay, I can breathe for the next three hours and get off work. Have you eaten? Are you okay? And then you know, maybe sometimes around like 10 or 11, you know, putting on my pajamas and then getting the call, packing a bag, coming over, spending the night, staying up till 3 a.m., 4 or 5, sometimes 6 a.m. with you. You, I used to, <laughs> I used to try to get you to fall asleep, like but give you a melatonin or, you know, try, try and sneak something sleepy, like sleepy time tea in between your wine because you would just, you'd stay up all night, like in this manic kind of way. And I'd just be looking at the clock like, okay, if I go to bed now, I can sleep for two hours before I have to go to work. And then, you know, we're doing it a few times. And I remember one of the last times I got up, I'm, you know, okay, okay, you're okay. Just like hang on till I get there. And I hung up the phone. I started crying and I was like, I can't, I cannot do this anymore. And I was saying this to my boyfriend and of course I was coming. There was no question. It was just like pure exhaustion. And he packed my bag and he's like, you got it. You know, you just, you just have to, you just have to keep doing it. And it was just this, like, I don't know, this, like, really encouraging, like, he helped me pack it, you know, he got my stuff ready for me, he took care of my dog and was like, just go, like, you're gonna be fine, just fucking do it, keep showing up, like, if this is what's keeping Lee alive, of course I would keep doing it, I, there was never a question of me coming or not, but, but it was hard. Oh my god, it was... Honestly, I, I've been through some shit. 
you know that. I think it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to keep coming over and knowing that I was staying up all night with someone who doesn't remember what they're saying um, is full on PTSD. Like I wasn't hanging out with Lee. We weren't like staying up watching movies. It was, it was a cyclone, total cyclone where like one time you like went in for a hug and I hugged you and then someone else touching you made you go like, (gasps) you know, like you threw my arms off of me and you were like sobbing. And I was like, do I hug her again? Or like, what do, you know, it was just like, I, I almost felt like someone like thrown into a job where they have absolutely no experience. And it was like, you and I were learning together of like hurt person and caretaker of like how to navigate all of this because it was like, okay, let me try doing this tonight. Like, okay, that did not work. Like one time I kept trying to get you to puff my CBD pen because it, for me, it helped me fall asleep. So I kept trying to get you to puff this pen. And it was like <gasps> 6 a.m. And I'm like, okay, this didn't work. Clearly she doesn't react to CBD like I do. But you know, it was like, okay, hugging when she's freaking out. Do not do that. Like I'm learning as you're learning of what we can do and what we can't do. So at this point in the story, it was around July or August of 2018. And it was around this time that I got a strange call from the detective. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Like I said, this is a part one of a two-part episode. So in the next episode, I'll take you through the call from the detective and what that entailed, which was a pretty pivotal point in the story for me. Um... And I went into great detail about my mental state at this point in this episode. And in the next, I'll take you through um, how I was able to get myself back. And I wanted to say a special thank you to my friend Sydney because I told her um, that I was having trouble recording this episode and that I had taken a couple stabs at it, like I said at the beginning, and um, was struggling to get it to come out right. It kept coming out, out angry or, you know, the, the next time it came out as me apologizing for everything that, that my ex-boyfriend did and minimizing my own feelings. And she said, um, even if you released a version of the episode where it was just you spitting angry vitriol. (laughs) And then the next week said, okay, now this is the one where I apologize for everything. Um, We would all relate to that so much. And it really freed me up to claim claim my perspective and claim my story. So 
thank you to her. Um, and thank you to all of you. And I hope you tune in next week. <laughs>